Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Today's reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star in its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all of Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and bring him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out there ahead of them, went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. This is the word of the Lord. Please take a moment for silent reflection. We continue centering ourselves through a prayer that's connected to our breath. So on the inhale, we pray silently, gracious God. And on the exhale, we pray, lead us by your spirit. So let's take a few moments to pray that together. Gracious God, lead us by your spirit. As we listen to this story now, one that if we've been a part of church for a while, we've heard brought out every year at this time. Or even if we're not much of a church-going type, we've, we're familiar with the story of the wise men. We see it in nativity scenes and mangers on front porches and church properties. Surprise us today, however we find ourselves. 
whether we approach this story from a place of faith or doubt or somewhere in between. Whether we approach the season of the new year from optimism and hope and energy or from lethargy, fear, depression, confusion, or anger, or just being bored. However we find ourselves, help us to see that you know us and you see us in all our differences, in all our complexities, in all our contradictions, and your response is to move toward us in sacrificial, self-giving love in the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Teach us and lead us in a way that our lives would be transformed. Speak to us in a way that we would hear and listen and have the courage to respond and send us out to be agents of your renewal wherever we go. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, the story we just heard is the story of um, you know, the, three, the Magi coming to see Jesus. And if you've been around church for a while, you might be thinking there cannot possibly be anything new under the sun to say about this passage. And even if you're not, as I said, a church-going person, you're saying, I already know the story. I've seen the Christmas pageants. I've heard the carols, we three kings of Orient are, all of that. And you're thinking, what else could be new? What could, this, what could we have to say today? And I would just start by saying, be careful, because you might know far less about this story than you realize. For example, this is often called the three kings visiting Jesus, but it doesn't mention kings at all. It mentions the magi, which would have been astrologers and astronomers. Those two things often went hand in hand. They would have represented royalty, but royalty themselves is never mentioned. And the number three is never mentioned either. There are three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but it doesn't mention there are three magi. I could give my wife Florence three gifts for Christmas, but it doesn't mean there are three of me. We don't know how many there were. Apparently, there was a rather large entourage, and the whole picture of the wise men, the magi in the manger, apparently, by this point, Mary and Joseph had relocated to a house somewhere in Bethlehem, as it says, when they found them in the house. Some time had gone on between when the shepherds followed that star to the manger on the night Jesus was born and the time when the star led the Magi to Jesus. So just let this expand your mind for one moment. Now I know someone else is saying, does that even matter? Because this is all the stuff of legend anyways. I mean, a star leading a bunch of wise people from the east to this baby who's the Christ child, the king, all of that, that's the stuff of legend. And I would just say, first of all, I hear you, but also that's not the way in which Matthew, the gospel writer, records this. Let me give you an example. Legend is the stuff that you would put down always to advance your causes and elevate your heroes so that your vision can move on. You include the good stuff and you leave out the less desirable stuff. But from the very beginning, this story, Matthew the Gospel writer, makes sure that you and I see these are magi from the east who, as I said, would have practiced astrology. They also would have practiced divination. These were practices that were outlawed, prohibited in Deuteronomy, in, uh, by the prophet Isaiah. These were things that would have been an affront to the original audience of this story. In other words, Matthew would not have included these details in his gospel unless they just actually happened. And he puts them down as the record. 
But beyond all that, let's just take a look as we consider this day of epiphany. Epiphany means manifestation. You use this sometimes when you had an epiphany and you hate your boss and you don't have to work in your career anymore and you can go do other things. You had a realization, a manifestation, an epiphany. What's the great epiphany? What does it mean? It means that we are surprised by grace. We see the surprise of grace. We see the pathway of grace. And we see what gracious worship looks like. In other words, we see that you are included, the surprise of grace. That new creation's breaking forth in a surprising way. We see the pathway of grace by way of two cautionary tales and one hopeful example to follow. And then third, we see the response, the gracious worship, the response that activates everything. First, the surprise of grace. And I'm just going to give you the punchline. This is terrible, like, rhetorical building up all of the suspense. Here's the the punchline. Everyone, thank you, Sarah, everyone is included, which means you are included. Now, let's dig into that. Let's go further. The Magi, these wise men from the East, as I mentioned, were astrologers. They were pagan. They were educated. They would have had access to resources. We've already seen the shepherds come who would have been the opposite of all of that uneducated, unwealthy, unaccepted, and even in their own circles, okay? So we have the outsiders, the insiders, the educated, the uneducated, the poor, the wealthy, all. Does that surprise you? When you think of the church today, do you think this is the place where all belong and are welcomed? Because this is the story we get from the earliest days of who Jesus came for. Like I mentioned, the Eastern Magi had not only dabbled in, they didn't just dabble in astrology, it's what they did. They had their PhD from Harvard in astrology and did it on behalf, most likely, of the king of Persia. By the way, the king of Persia had a nickname, the king of kings. And when you've been conquering other empires for long enough, people start to buy that sort of a moniker. And so here are the wise astrologers, astronomers, on behalf of the king of kings, coming from the east to Jesus, bowing down before the true king of kings. Just absorb that for a moment. The most unlikely people to bow to Jesus as king are there in the earliest days. The surprise of grace. Now, many of you are experiencing, have experienced, or will the surprise of grace in your life. I hear so often in today's moment, people saying, you saying, can you actually be educated and rational and believe in the scientific processes and technology of this world and believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And then you're surprised by grace as you let your questions press you on a journey of investigating, of exploring, of questioning, and the epiphany for you is, or will be, that Jesus does not squash your intellectual questions, but actually completes them, meets you in them, and helps them make sense. As C.S. Lewis, who was both a professor at Oxford and Cambridge in England, one of the most brilliant Christian theologians of the 20th century said, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun, not only because I can see it, but by its light I can see everything else. In other words, as you begin to use your mind, Christianity is not checking your brain at the door to come in and believe these things that ancient people believed, despite the obvious evidence in the contrary. Not at all. 
It's an invitation to go on a deeper journey and actually press into your questions. So for many of you, the journey is to use Christianity as a set of good seeing eyeglasses and use it to look through the world and you realize it begins to make sense of your life and the world around you. It means that you're included. Whatever your intellectual stumbling blocks are, whatever your experiential stumbling blocks are, which for, for many of you, you could say, intellectually, I can assent to Christianity. I can believe these things. But I've been so hurt by people who call themselves Christians that I could never actually engage in following Jesus or engage again. And this story comes to you and says, I see you, and this is for you. Behold the one, the light in the darkness who comes to all. And all means all. So then that also means not only does it come to you and me and our brokenness and our doubt and our fear and our confusion and all the ways we get it and all the ways we don't get it and all the ways you're a great person and all the ways you're not that great of a person. And it comes to you. But it also means then it goes to the person next to you and the person across the aisle from you and the person that you can't stand That's the scandal of God's grace. The original scandal of God's grace is not that it's too exclusive. That's what people believe today. Christianity, the church, keeps people out. The original scandal of God's grace is that it's too inclusive. You're actually going to let those people into this community? And the answer is yes. Which means that there's every invitation for you. And there are no excuses. Now, I don't say that with pressure or guilt or manipulation. I just say that when you look in the mirror today, you can say to yourself, there's every invitation to enter into the grace of God, and there are no excuses. You might have reasons. You might have things that you need to work through, and you're invited to work through those things in this community. But it's green light. The path is open. God is calling you to God's self. The only thing that will keep you away is you saying no. There's something else really interesting going on here. And in all of the commentary, I've probably preached on this 6, 10, 15 times. I've never read before, but just I, just I was meditating on this and noticed as new creation is breaking forth, the story mentions the wise men were from the East. The East, as a construct, throughout the Old Testament, particularly in Genesis, is a construct for moving away from God. It's a picture of it. It's a a cipher for it. Adam and Eve, when they disobeyed God, left Eden and they went east. Cain and Abel, after Cain killed his brother Abel, he left and he settled east in the land of Nod. And in some ways you can say humanity, ever since the fall, our brokenness, our fracturedness, has been traveling east. It's a picture of moving away from God. And on this earliest day of the new creation breaking forth, you see people coming from the east back to God. An unraveling of all the fracturedness and brokenness and distancing and pain and violence that we have done to ourselves and to each other. And new creation is being birthed in the midst of the old. And it comes to you now. The surprise of God's grace. But there's also a pathway to grace. I mentioned to you two cautionary tales and one hopeful pathway forward. First cautionary tale, Herod. Herod, King Herod. King Herod was a regional king. You know, the Roman Empire was set up really well, very organized for its time. 
enough to conquer all the empires around it, enforce peace at the tip of a spear, the Pax Romana, peace through violence. And so you'd have Caesar, and then you have all these kind of lower level, but still powerful in their own region people, and Herod was one of those. Herod was half Jewish. Herod had actually labeled himself the king of the Jews. So here you have the self-proclaimed king of the Jews, and it says in verse 3 that when Herod heard that there was a new king of the Jews, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. Frightened, I bet. Because his power, his title, his influence is openly being threatened. And it says, in all Jerusalem with him. I want you to imagine this for a moment. When you have a tyrannical despot who abuses power over the people, frightened and unstable, all the people tremble with fear. Herod had already had his wife and three sons killed because he was concerned that they were going to be a threat to his power. What is this fearful, powerful man going to do now that he hears there's a threat to his crown? And surely we do read the tragic massacre of all the infants. This comes one chapter later when Herod is so threatened by the birth of this child that he orders all children two years and younger to be killed so that the incoming ruler would be extinguished. So yes, they were terrified. They were afraid. This is not the light of God coming into a place that was already doing pretty well just to help them go from good to great or victory to victory or mountaintop to mountaintop. This is the light of God coming into the violence of what we do to each other and to ourselves. You know, rulers actually feared astrological signs of their demise. There was a story of Emperor Nero slaughtering all the nobles of his court because he hoped that, uh, that a, a comet that had come through would predict the death of them, not of him. Fear of losing power drives us into all sorts of destructive behavior. Now, you not, you, I, I know you well enough to know that there is not a regional Roman emperor despot in here. So you might not be afraid of losing your empire politically. But I'd make the case you are afraid of losing your empire in some way. It could be your wealth could be your health, could be your access, could be your reputation in the community, could be the influence that you do have because we do have influence. Some of you have more than others. But beware that the fear of losing power in your life drives all sorts of other behaviors. We see this politically as we watched this week in the House of Representatives where there were 15 votes for the Speaker of the House. And however you view that politically, you have to admit what you saw was a person who's willing to make all sorts of compromises in order to stay in power. We, saw this on, we see this continually in the international relations stage as Russia seems to stop at nothing to gain more power. But Putin, the, the leader of Russia's narrative is, this all belongs to us anyways, so I'm really trying to keep power. The pursuit of power, the hanging on of power will drive you to all sorts of destructive behavior. Now it's easy to see it when it's out there, but it's hard to see it in our own life. What are you afraid of losing? And how is that driving 
the trajectory of your life. See, Christians aren't called to be safe. I mean, I do pray for protection for all of you and for my family. I, those are literal prayers I pray. But we're not ultimately called to be safe. We're ultimately called to be dangerous in all the right ways. And there is no one who's more dangerous in all the right ways than someone who's not afraid of anything. This is where when you can hear Jesus say, no matter what happens to you, I'll be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. It begins to unlock new freedoms, new abilities to love other people recklessly, to give yourself on behalf of others, to love yourself in a way that you haven't loved yourself. It's a new identity altogether. And so the gospel confronts us. Jesus is the king and you aren't. Doesn't that just insult you? You receive messages every day, thousands of them, aimed to tell you that in some way or another you are designed and meant to have everything you want. I was reading a theologian earlier this week who talks about as children, uh, babies, try to put everything in their mouth. You have to keep stuff out of their mouth. And they say, isn't that just part of our primal instinct? We want to eat the world. We want everything. And Jesus says, I'm king and you are not, which is terrifying until you see how good he is and how much he loves you. He is not another Herod. He is not another Caesar. He is not another politician who is going to make concessions so that they can stay in power. He is the true king of the world and he empties himself on your behalf. Cautionary tale, beware of the threat of power in your life and what it does to you. But we have another one. The scribes and the chief priests. It's a picture of apathy. Apathy, that's like one of our native languages today. Apathy, there's just too many things to be concerned about, so I'm not going to be concerned about anything. What's your favorite show on Netflix? Right? Apathy. Herod goes to the scribes and the chief priests. These would have been the religious elites. The scribes particularly would have been completely engulfed and immersed in the world of Scripture. Biblical studies majors, PhDs. And he says, where will the Messiah be born? And they consult the Scriptures. That Scripture there, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least of the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is the shepherd, my people, Israel. That's the prophet Micah, chapter 5, Verse 2, the point is, they knew the Bible. They knew Scripture. They were the Bible answer man, which back then they would have been all men. They knew the Scriptures. That was not the problem. They had biblical knowledge, but they didn't act on it. Why didn't they go to Bethlehem if they knew that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem? That's like having a treasure map for a treasure that you trust and not following it to its logical conclusion while somebody else gets the jackpot and you complain of not having wealth. Apathy. They wrote Jesus off. But there's this principle that you already know. Knowledge without action is useless. Knowledge, you can know something, but if you don't do anything about it, it's useless. I remember someone, um, a leader in business saying, you know, around here we operate on the Noah principle. Noah, the flood, the ark, all that. They go, you don't get credit for saying it's going to rain. You only get credit for building boats. <laughs> Knowledge without action is useless. Jesus said this, whoever hears my words and puts them into action is like a person who builds their house on a rock, and when the winds come and the waves rise, it will batter against you, but the house will stand because the rock is solid. Now, if you would... Indulge me for a moment. I don't mean to make this overly simplistic, 
There are more things to say about this topic, but I felt compelled as I meditated on this passage to say this. We have a national example where Christians know the scriptures say, Jesus says actually in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, he talks about pray for your enemies and bless those who persecute you. Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, which we studied last year, all the way last year, a couple weeks ago, he said, if someone slaps you, turn the other cheek. If they make you go a mile, go the extra mile. There's all sorts of wisdom and nuance to it. You can go back and listen to the sermons. But the point is, to follow Jesus is to be a person who lives a life that looks like turning swords into plowshares, like turning objects of violence into objects of peace and flourishing. We know the scriptures. And this week, as we reflected on the violent insurrection at the Capitol two years ago, we saw Christians in Christian shirts praying next to a cross, next to a gallows with a noose saying, saying, hang the vice president. I'm not throwing stones, I'm not belittling, I'm not dehumanizing, that's just a fact. We saw Christians praying before they violently stormed the Capitol building in tactical gear, military violent tactical gear, and doing violence to, among other people, the police officers who were there to defend and protect. It's e- the default drive is to know, have the knowledge, to know it, but to put it into practice is an entirely different thing, and that gives me empathy and courage and patience, hopefully, with my brothers and sisters with whom I disagree. The default drive is to know scripture and to not act on it. And it's easier to see in a violent mob trying to attack the capital, disrupt democracy, all in the name of justice, love, and truth. But it's more insidious. Because it's not just out there. It's in here. In fact, knowing enough scripture can be dangerous for you because it can inoculate you. You begin to anesthetize yourself. You have just enough of the real deal to tell you that you're cured, but not enough to actually let it be potent in your life. And so there's this invitation to always refresh the ways that we view scripture, to go deeper. How are you immersed in scripture? We give you so many opportunities, and I'll give you more if you need more. If you look through the worship folder of this worship service, you will see scripture from the call to worship to the benediction. It's not just now. It's throughout the whole entire service. You've been eating a nine-course meal whether you knew it or not. But then we have community group where you can kind of massage it deeper and digest it. You can ask your questions. You can apply it. What is, last, uh, during Advent, we encourage you to adopt a daily regimen of scripture in your life. Just Bible reading. I gave you a couple examples of how to do that. You can go back and listen to that sermon. By the way, I, pr- I try to practice what I preach, but I'm not always the best at it, but I try. It's good for me, it's good for you. How are you immersing yourself in Scripture? And then, how do you need to act upon it? Remember, knowledge without action is useless. Faith without works is dead, as it says later in the book of James. What do you need to act upon? I came upon this quote by writer David Dark this week. He said, sin, definition of sin, Sin is active flight from a lived realization of available data. In other words, you know what is good and true and real and right, and you choose to act differently from that. As my systematic theology theology professor used to say, when you go against the grain of reality, you should expect to get a splinter or two. So this is not a call to shame, 
This is a call to realignment. This is a call to life. The question is, what are you aligning yourself to? Because all of you are aligning yourself to something. All right, those are the two, those are the two um, cautionary tales. Herod describes the Pharisees. One hopeful way forward, the Magi. What are the Magi doing? What's the first action? They're watching. They're on the lookout. It's the first step. Be watching and be on the lookout. What's the second step? As they note the star in the heavens, they start walking. They move. They do something. But they move in the direction of the guidance. It's dynamic. And all of that is an act of trust. Let's go with them. Think about this. So they're watching. Again, this was their job. I'm kind of an astronomical nerd. You're like, that means you're a nerd to astronomical proportions. Yes, maybe that. But also I like astronomy. And I could take you out tonight and pretty much with my eyes closed point to you at any time until bedtime where Saturn is, where Jupiter is, where Mars is. I just know these things because I care about them. It's not my job. I just love it. I'm a hobbyist. These people were professionals. They knew where, they had the journals, they had the charts. They made the journals and they made the charts and they observed the star and the sky. Now, there was some heavenly phenomenon that was taking place. We don't know exactly what it is, but we do understand that in their minds, when something happened in the celestial bodies, they believed that it was reflecting something equally amazing happening on earth. So if something was happening in the heavens, something was happening on earth, and we want to find out what it is. Um, astronomy and astrology, as I said, go hand in hand. And they had a real big boost several years earlier when Julius Caesar was being buried. There happened to be a supernova that took place that anybody could see with the naked eye. You could go back and read this in Tacitus and Josephus and all these old historians. But it gave a huge boost to the astrology and astronomy business for years, for generations. Hot, so hot right now. Okay. I went to a um, presentation by an astronomer at one of the universities at Reuben H. Fleet Space Center, and they talk about what could that have been. And what we do know is there was a conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter during the same year, around the time when Jesus was born. Uh, they actually can scroll back the sky and say it happened on May 29th, October 3rd, and December 4th. There's this conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter. If you were watching, so if you just looked up at the sky, you might not notice much. But if you looked every night and you were tracking the planets, you would notice that these planets were coming closer together and it looked like they were dancing together. That's why not everybody saw the star, but if you were really looking and paying attention, you'd see it. I'm, I told you I'm a nerd. I might go into this too deep. I'm going to back up here. All right. Jupiter was the planet that was associated with kings. Saturn was the planet that was associated with the Jewish people. And so they saw Saturn and Jupiter dancing together in the sky, and they saw something that showed them the king of the Jews was to be born. Interesting. So where did they go? They went to the place where Jewish kings would be born. Jerusalem. And they went to the place where a king would hang out. Herod's palace. This is all common sense at this point. And here's the point. God reveals God's self to people who are looking. What are you looking for? What's captured your attention? Secondarily, God reveals God's self to where you're looking. I, mean, it's, I think it's just 
it's still blowing my mind to realize they were in the midst of a practice that has been outlawed in Scripture, and God meets them in that. I've heard of God meeting people in crack houses and brothels and all kinds of places where you probably shouldn't be, because God goes everywhere. God will meet you anywhere. The question is, are you watching? Are you waiting? I have conversations with you, and, and you say, God's not breaking through in my life, to which I say, if God was breaking through, what do you think it would be like? And you say, I don't know. Maybe God's breaking through right now and you're just not aware because you're not sure what to be looking for. Be on the lookout, like the wise men, like the magi. The magi go to Jerusalem. They want to find the king, but he's not there. What shows them that they should leave Jerusalem and go somewhere else? It wasn't the star. That's a hint. The star shows up when they're on their way. It was the scriptures. It was the, they searched the scriptures and found Micah 5, 2, which sent them to Bethlehem. Now, without getting all the way into the details, so now they're moving from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a six-mile walk south of Jerusalem. It's not far. Okay? Let's imagine it took them, they walk two miles per hour, they have an entourage, three-hour walk. There's some, as they're walking, the star is ahead of them. I don't know what that star was, okay? It couldn't be far off because at a six-mile distance, it would have to be like a mile to earth or closer. I don't know what it was. I do know that I've stayed up all night before and sat on my friend's porch after a great night of conversation and it looked like an airplane was about to land on the house, and I was unnerved by the bright light that was so close to me. My mind was clear, mind you. And I was unnerved because this light seemed not to move. And I found out later that was the planet Venus, which sometimes can be so bright when it's low in the sky that it looks like a search helicopter is looking into your house. Have you ever seen this? It's amazing. I wonder if it was something like that. I don't know what it was, but I do know this. It echoes the way that God led God's people out of slavery into freedom through the wilderness in the Exodus story. When they were lost and wandering, God showed up with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and led God's people to freedom. And here is God leading people to the true king of freedom. So let's be like the wise men. Let's be like the magi. Walking and looking. Walking and moving. Searching the scriptures and trusting. It led them to Jesus and it'll lead you and me as well. And finally, the response that changes everything. Very quickly. They did two things. They gave him gifts. This is an act of worship. This is what you do when you meet royalty. The old English word for worship is worth-ship. It really is. Worship, what we're doing now, is to consider the worth of God and to give God all that God is worth. That's worship. And so on one hand, they bring these gifts, which were standard gifts for people from the east. Frankincense and myrrh, in particular, could be harvested in that region. These are gifts that you would give a king. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But they're also exemplary or symbolic gifts pointing to a deeper reality. As gold is something that would signify royalty, they're giving a gift to the king. Frankincense is something that would be used in the temple by the priests. They're giving a gift to the true priest who can stand on behalf of humanity and God, bringing all things together. 
and myrrh was a spice that you would use to prepare a dead body for burial. They're bringing that spice to a baby, which is completely awkward unless you consider it's already foretelling that this is a baby unlike any other, a king like any other, who will give his life on behalf of all. Because here, the scribes and the chief priests are apathetic, and they write him off. But their successors will call for his crucifixion. Here, Herod is afraid and murderous, and later Jesus will come before Caesar's subordinate, Pilate. Pilate will be warned in a dream not to touch him. And his soldiers will be the first Gentiles since the Magi to say, this is the king of God. This is the king. Except his crown will be a crown of thorns. And his throne will be a cross. And instead of a bright star shining, there will be unearthly darkness across the face of the earth. And a single Gentile voice will call out, this was God's son. This is a king unlike any other. A king who will take all the fear and the power grabbing and the greed and the disobedience and violence and pain and even death upon himself. And who will recycle it into new life in his resurrection. This is a king worth giving gifts to. And so we're encouraged today in true worship to give our best gifts. What do you have to contribute to the kingdom of God? Give it freely. And, second action, they left for their own country by another road. Everybody who meets Jesus ends up walking a different way. I think it's neat to, to see they left back for their own country by another road. For some of you, following Jesus will mean maybe moving geographically somewhere else. It might mean a change of career or vocational or educational direction. But for most of us, it means going back to your own country, going back to your own job, going back to your own home, you know, to, to your community, to your neighborhood, to your family. and You're going back to what you've already been to, but you're going in a different way. You're changed. You have a new story to tell. You have a new hope to follow. You have a new resilience and a new power in your life. New creation is breaking forth in you, and it flows from you to others. What does that look like for you? Friends, on this Epiphany Sunday, let's consider the whole story. Come to Jesus by any route. Bring him your best gifts. And go home by another way with a new story to tell. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we pray now that you would fill our lives with the light of your truth just as you filled the Magi's lives with the light of your calling, your leadership, and your direction. However we find ourselves this morning, wake us up to your grace and send us out to love others how you love us. Press this story deep into our souls, into our bones, into our hearts, and help us to live as these wise people did, seeking you, finding you, sharing your goodness and your glory wherever we go. We pray in your name. Amen.